Just a few film nerds breaking out of a rut Drooling over cinema that's hard and uncut Stick us in your ear, thrill to this month's picks And come and listen in, we're Measuring Flicks Hello everybody and welcome back to Measuring Flicks It is part two of me and uh, my lovely, talented, beautiful artist wife, Bird <laughs> Talking about uh, The Shining from 1980, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, we, I was saying we never get a chance to do this because when we have long episodes, I just cut them and put them together real quick. But because we're in control of this, I'm going to shout the patrons out again. You can head on over to patreon.com slash quillandfilm, Q-U-I-L-L-A-N-D-F-I-L-M. And you can get shout outs on the show, full length bonus episodes, all sorts of great stuff. At what uh, dollar amount do these cool things start happening? Well... Uh, you know, the I think we were going to get rid of the $1 tier. You can pledge whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, the $1 tier gave you shout-outs on the show and access to the feed, which honestly, the feed is one of the secret best features of our Patreon <laughs> because all the patrons hang out on there and say mm-hmm. hilarious shit, particularly William Rockwood and David Rowney. Um, and then when, oh my God, when Connor Sweeney gets on there. <laughs> anyway, the, the feed is fun. Um, but at $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. We uh, typically do when, you know, during non-quarantine lockdown time periods, uh, Carl and I do two, ep- minimum of two episodes every month, full length. We cover sequels, remakes, and any movies that we just kind of wanted to watch that didn't Patreon fit in exclusive. with our themes. Yeah, Patreon exclusive episodes. Cool. All all uh, all the episodes are available for download, or you can listen to them on Patreon.com or in the Patreon app if you've got that. Um, so we would like to sh- we would like to thank the people who are supporting the show: uh, Connor Sweeney, Brian Jackson, David Rowney, Danielle Hartelli, Carl Hartley, Jeffrey Morgan, Casey Scheibe, Kelly and Mike Wagner, Kevin Ramirez, Sarah Hartley, and William. Rockwood. So if you were listening to our episode of The Shining and me and Bird's disagreement or are talking about crazy minute details or not talking about details that you had seen or if you disagree with us or agree with us, you can let us know about it at measuringflixpodcast at gmail.com. All right. If you weren't listening to that you missed something you got to go back yeah this is part two of uh <laughs> of, of us covering the shining so you should probably know that the first episode of this was two hours long and the shining is kind of a lot to talk about <laughs> there's a lot going on there um so yeah go back and check that out and we're going to dive into part two right now with jack torrance desperately needing a drink mm, mm. all right so this scene where Jack goes into the gold room and it's empty. And there's that bit where he walks up to the bar and he looks at the empty shelves and he looks, hmm. And he looks, well, I was just thinking, things on shelves in this movie are significant. So I wonder how the booze looks. I'll bet you the booze is in perfect order. I'll bet you any money because what in Jack's life would be perfect and pristine? Five miserable. The only thing he really cares about alcohol. What's that great line when he finally takes when he drinks that whole glass of bourbon down? Here's to five five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm it has caused Mm. me, or something like that. Oh my god, the line is so amazing. Um, so he goes into the gold room, which is the big like uh, banquet party hall thing where the Fourth of July celebration will ultimately take place, which has just been renovated by the owners of the Overlook. But that. That scene between Jack and Lloyd. By the way, someone, uh, many, many, many people have pointed out that 
the name, all of the name lineups in this movie. Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance. Danny Lloyd plays Dan Danny Lauren, uh, Danny Torrance. Uh, Danny Danny's real last name is Lloyd. The bartender's named Lloyd. The only person who had no names in in common with any characters was Shelley Duvall, and Kubrick used that to bully her. He was like. He was like, you know, you're the only one who doesn't have any names. It's almost like you weren't meant to be here. <laughs> like, yeah, he was like really mean to her. Oh, man. <laughs> but, you know, do you want to take a little sidebar on Shelley Duvall real quick? I guess. All right. So, obviously, what Kubrick did to her during this movie, the psychological abuse, which mm-hmm. is what it was. Oh, yeah. Was horrible. Yeah. But, but that... The performance that he got out of her is unlike anything. I feel like if you really trust your actors and you cast the right person, you shouldn't have to bully them into being acting abused. Uh, this is something we didn't mention in the last episode. Jack Nicholson was a huge fan of Stephen King's novel, mm-hmm. and he wanted Kubrick to faithfully render it, and he had casting suggestions for Wendy. He wanted Jessica Lange. Oh my god. Who would have been the uh, 1980. This is like around the time she did that Francis Farmer biopic, which she's about the right age. She's about Shelley Duvall's age. Mm-hmm. So that's not too far off. But uh Kubrick uh cuz Stephen King always thought that the Wendy character, he thought of her as formerly the most popular girl in high school, blonde cheerleader who'd never had to deal with a hardship in her whole life, who's thrust into this strange situation mm. at the Overlook. When he, mm-hmm. Which is why when, because, you know, famously Stephen King does not like this movie. Mm-hmm. He went in, he, he uh, Stephen King called Didn't this. Didn't you say m- there's another version of this? There is. It's a six part TV miniseries written and I we think directed watch by King. We should watch that. Some people really Just like it. to do it. Spoilers for the TV miniseries version, version of The Shining, which I think came out in 1996. Um, there were, oh, in order to get. The, Isn't it just not very good? I've heard it's not very good. The last shot of it. Spoilers in five, four, three, two, one. The last shot of it is the ghost of Jack Torrance blowing a kiss to his son Danny at Danny's high school graduation. Ooh. Yeah. So, like, that's what it's supposed to be. In order to get the permission to make it, because the adaptation rights to his book had already been sold to Mm -hmm. Kubrick to make this movie. Mm -hmm. So, in order to adapt his own work, he had to sign an agreement. Kubrick, to release the rights, Kubrick had rules. Mm-hmm. He said, if, you, if I let you make this, you have to stop being critical of The Shining in public. So Stephen King is not allowed to say bad things about The Shining anymore contractually because Kubrick signed the rights to readapt his own novel into a bad TV miniseries. Isn't that convoluted? Anyway, um, Shelley Duvall in an interview, because I was curious because mm-hmm. this sounds really horrible. The... Uh, she holds the Guinness, well, she's part of the Guinness Book of World Records most takes for a single scene. The scene, oh, man. And you know what scene it is? It's not an easy one. It's the scene where Jack follows her through the Colorado room and she's swinging the bat at him and breaking down hysterically. Do you know how many times? Think about her breakdown. That makes sense. Yeah. Think about, how, do you, think about that. Think about how hard that must have been to fully break down, right, on camera. Do you know how many times Kubrick made her do that? According, over 100? Over 100. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, that was shot 123 times. Now, the cameramen refute that. The cameramen say that it was probably not shot more than 80 times. <laughs> but still, 80 times, dude. 
like also i think for something to hold a guinness book of world records you have to have like an official guinness book of world records person there to verify it yeah but well that's what i'm saying is it's in the guinness book of world records So 120, they say that this was shot 123 times. Jack Nicholson famously said that uh, um, Shelley Duvall did the hardest job that he's ever seen an actor have to do. He said that that was the hardest role, the hardest bit of work. He said that was the most difficult acting he'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And he was immensely impressed by it. And Shelley Duvall came out in an interview because people kept asking her like, so Kubrick just like tortured you for Mm -hmm. like, two-thirds of a year while you were shooting this 200 it was like a 220 day shoot or something like that so they're like you must hate his guts and actually carl and i just ran into this in season one adele Arcopolis and Lea sedo famously oh, yes. had trouble with the director on blue is the warmest yeah. color because he was extremely demanding and they felt abused and shelly duvall came out and she said it was so hard in the moment but I would not have traded that experience for anything because she in the interview she's like I fully recognize now that what he was doing to me then was drawing out a performance that was beyond my capability at that time like a trainer or a, a teacher who's very hard on a promising yeah. student yeah and Kubrick uh, famously after watching the first the finished finished first screening like for an audience mm-hmm. when he was done he said that Shelley Duvall's performance was a masterpiece and he'd spent the whole thing being like, every take you do sucks. You don't belong here. You're wasting everybody's time. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the movie was had rolled credits, he the, like the first thing he said was Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall's performance is a oh. masterpiece of acting. You know, like, so this, and it's 1980. It's a different time period. This is something that's famous in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I've always famous struggled. Famous or infamous. Infamous, definitely. <laughs> but this is something I've always struggled with with this movie is how do I feel about what Shelley Duvall went through in relation to what she accomplished through that and her opinion and his opinion and Jack Nicholson's opinion you know like it's it's weird it's a weird thing that happened Mm. to make this movie yeah a little devil's advocate we do not have to dig into this yeah yeah would you feel the same way if it was a man if a man had been like horrendously tortured all the way through this um we can just leave it at that i don't know i mean i mean what no you mean what i in a weird way i wouldn't be as conflicted if a man if i found out that a man had been like tormented on set in order to get a better performance i wouldn't i don't think i would be upset or troubled by it i'd just Mm -hmm. be like oh man what a bummer but what a great performance i wouldn't be like it was immoral what they mm-hmm. did to that guy in a weird way sometimes i wonder if what kubrick did to Shelley duvall was immoral i think mm-hmm. it might have been like it wasn't good for her for sure but like damn the end result was so amazing that everyone involved acknowledged like this was a really hellish way to get these results but the results speak for themselves they really do she this is the best performance she ever gave in her whole career she's not really working anymore so but like it's amazing. Uh, there's another movie, Last Tango in Paris. The female actress on that set said that she felt absolutely terrorized by the director. And I think she actually said, we talked about it in season one, mm-hmm. right before we talked about Blue is the Warmest Color, two movies back to back with actresses tormented by directors. But she Male said, directors. Male directors, yeah. She said she felt, um, she said that she felt raped by the production. But her co-star, Marlon Brando, 
can't, I wish I could remember her name, Maria, Maria something. But she and Brando had a great relationship all the way through the, the shoot and forever after. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I wanted to I wanted to make sure we talked a little, like, frankly, about yeah. Shelley Duvall's experience on this movie. Because it was not a good one. All right. Jack and Lloyd and the Gold Room. I got two 20s. This is, someone pointed this out, which I think is amazing. The further into madness the Jack slips, mm-hmm. his financial situation changes as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, because he has nothing in his wallet, even though he says he has $60 in there. Two 20s and two 10s. <laughs> I thought they were just going to have to keep sitting there or whatever he says, you know? And then he's like, oh, shit, nothing in there. And then See, later he's got money in there. Yeah. some. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I noticed that this time, the moment that he looks up and sees the bartender, nothing, nothing has happened until he says, I would sell my soul for a glass of beer right now. And when he raises his head, the bartender's Ding. waiting. What can I get for you? And he doesn't go, huh? Yeah. He's just like, oh, perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. And just slips into it naturally. What a great... You can can see... And not to continually compare directors to each other, but you can tell, like... You can see influences, right? Mm -hmm. And I would argue that probably my... Right now, the greatest living director of, of, of horror films, but possibly of any films, is Ari Aster. He's damn good. What? He's only filmed two films so far. I, yeah, but Hereditary you sure is you like an unassailable just... masterpiece. Okay, so I would say that one of the most compelling directors I've seen in a long time <laughs> is Ari Aster, right? And you can see Kubrick in his work from time to time. His use of miniatures, his use of really <laughs> wide shots, his use of meticulous framing, you know, and slow reveals. Like, But there's this great moment here where Jack looks up and he lets his hands fall to the bar. And then he just is looking at us. Us. Mm-hmm. And you realize, by the way, that the camera is where the mirror is. Mm-hmm. So he's looking into the mirror. Because there is no Lloyd. Right. This is Jack Torrance staring into the mirror, which yep. is the screen. I love how long Kubrick holds the shot. Because we could have him look up and like look surprised and then cut to Lloyd. But we don't. We give Jack like Nicholson like 15, 20 <laughs> seconds to work us. You know, and it 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 works. It to really, work us. Yeah, you know, ah, pst, work it uh, <laughs> or whatever. I don't know, but um, a, uh, bring me a bottle and a glass and some. There's, you won't get this bird. Carl would have, but you could try, try to try per, be Carl for a second. You're gonna play Carl, okay? Okay. <laughs> this is my wife is role playing my friend. <laughs> All right, when well, you know what you've. You've seen this, though. You've known the same people that I've known. When Jack Nicholson takes that glass and he does his toast, you know, and he drinks that bourbon back all in one go, right? Does he say, what is his toast? Does he say a toast? Here's to five miserable months on the wagon. Oh, yes. And all the the irreparable irreparable harm that's done me or whatever. It's something like that. And then he drinks that down and sets it and he like looks at the ice and he sets it down. That... Because, you know, Kubrick shoots things 60 times. That's not real whiskey or Jack Nicholson would be dead right now. Uh, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> um, but that that first that first drink that he takes, that is the most perfect representation of a cold drink of bourbon exactly when you need it that I've ever seen. I've made that face. I know many people 
who have I've seen that face on people. I've seen that face on alcoholics that I used to work with. You know, a couple of them, but like, and maybe at that time I was possibly a low grade alcoholic. But like, that is the Jack Nicholson's performance is that feeling exactly, and it's just a performance. That sigh. Yes. That uh, release. Yeah, and he his voice is like a touch <clears throat> hoarse when he starts talking again because bourbon does kind of you know it it like puts a little bit of phlegm in your throat. It's a little hot. Yeah, like exactly. What do you on our? I'm like I've been drinking on our bur- on our break. It is the it is the COVID nineteen. So Bird and I both did have our uh, nine thirty a.m. old fashions. <laughs> 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 but no, you you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, it's imagine a gimlet on a hot day. You know, like mm. dude, I'm telling you, like Jack Nicholson did with his features and his posture. It's I just wanted to to shout out his performance because man, he nailed. He nailed that first drink. You know what I mean? Anyway, uh, I really liked that. So do you want to talk about the rotting woman in 237? Oh, dude, I want to high five that chick. <laughs> do you want to know a fun... And by f- chick, I mean chicks? old lady, and she's definitely dead. The old lady no. and the young lady? Two different actresses, obviously. Um, the older gal. Do you want to know fun fact about both of those women? Sure. They were never in anything before this movie, and they were never in anything after this movie. I thought you were going to tell me that they were actually like mother and daughter or grandmother and granddaughter or something. No, no. That, two <laughs> separate actresses. This was it. It's like Candace Hillegas in Carnival of Souls. Mm. She's like not, she's mm-hmm. like doing like a bubblegum commercial and some toothpaste. And then she's in one of the greatest horror films ever shot and then just never works again. It's crazy. But this happens, man. That flash in the pan thing where you're just in the best the best of that j- decade or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, my God. Th- that, like, rotting woman makeup. Oh, my God. It's so <sighs> good. It's incredible. There was a... I thought for a second... There's this bit where she's, like... When she gets out of the tub, the rotting old lady gets out of the tub, and she's, like, walking towards Jack, and Jack's, like, stumbling backwards. There's a bit where, like, she raises her leg, and you can... I think what you're seeing... I, I can't tell. I'd have to watch the movie a dozen more times and write an essay about it. But there's this bit where she like raises her leg and I couldn't tell if it was like, cause she's, she's an older woman. She's mm-hmm. in her like, you know, probably 70. Um, I couldn't tell if it was her skin wrinkling on her thigh or if it was the prosthetic bunching as she mm. walked. Cause she is taking small steps cause she's in a like huge swaths of prosthetic are on right. her body. She can't like stretch too much probably. Right. But then like I watched it and I was like, and this morning I wanted, it was in my notes. So I wanted to go check it out and I'm like, okay, is it a mistake? And I watched it and the way that it looks on screen, it doesn't look like a bunching prosthetic. And I figured out why it messed with me last night. She has these big spaces in her skin where her skin has split open from being like waterlogged and starting Mm -hmm. to rot. Yeah. So her skin her skin is not taut over her musculature anymore. There's open patches, like a ripped pair of jeans. So her skin is moving around as well, she also, walks. How many times have you ever seen a naked older woman? To be honest, not Never? even not even a single time. All right, when you hit like late sixties, early seventies, we're gonna get. We'll you look in, at my thighs and see how flappy they are as you walk, yeah. and we'll figure out your flappy thighs okay. or not. But it, what it looks like when you watch it is it looks like her skin is like free floating over the meat underneath. It's an it's amazing. It is a really really good prosthetic, yeah. and it's really scary. the The young woman is really scary. There's it's the siren. 
Yeah. And it's also that it's also that that Kubrick mute like no sound thing. Mm-hmm. Just like really subdued music, silence. Also, this is something that also the bathroom is orange and green. Orange and Yeah, I mean Sorry. we we can talk about color palettes for <laughs> we'll do a whole episode on just the colors, but um Oh, by the way, if you're curious, listener, about the colors, I will I will tell you, based on experience, watch the movie and come up with your own theories. Think about it yourself, because I went looking on the internet for like what people say about the colors in The Shining, and I gotta tell you, people are, these are dumb theories. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm forming a theory right now. About and red and you blue? Can absolutely tell me this bullshit. Okay. A lot of people just, the stuff you can find on forums just doesn't make much sense, and it seems pretty shallow. So... Do your thinking. Here's you know? my here's my thinking. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of what he seems to be doing is addressing the levels of things. Right. The conscious and everything below it. Right. Like the, so if the you think, three shelves of the of bookshelves and the way that things are tiered. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you think about red, yellow, and blue, we don't see a lot of the yellow in there. I think until near the end. Yeah. I think he's using the yellow in a a way to address um, uh, unwellness, illness. It's the color of sickness, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, But I think that that's, he's using those three colors primarily because they are the primary colors. They're the first colors that you use in a color wheel. I see what you did there. And then below that, you have the secondary colors, which are when you're mixing red yellow and blue into one of the others right so then that's a lower level and then after that you get tertiary colors so you're sinking deeper and deeper into the subconscious or the lower levels so wait let me parse this you could analyze (laughs) you could analyze the shining from a from a let's say Freudian slash Jungian psychological perspective utilizing the color wheel Mm -hmm. as your active metaphors. Yeah. See? Primary is the first level. (laughs) Secondary color, you've gone below the conscious. So maybe that's where the emotion in Kubrick lies. Maybe he doesn't have an emotional... An emotional vocabulary to deal with this on a personal level, but he can use symbolism. Because... I think that is where Kubrick shines. Really, is in his visual structure. Mm-hmm. It, he can tell he can tell stories that to you twice at the same time. There's what's happening on the screen, and then there's everything else on the screen that is working furiously on your brain without you realizing it. He he truly is a genius. I'm not always a fan of his movies. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think they're boring, but I don't think you can take that away from him. He's a total. He broke the mold. He's an auteur, you know what I mean? In the way that Jarmusch is an auteur and early Spielberg was rewriting the way that movies are being made. Um, so I want to talk more about two sequen- two scenes. Mm-hmm. We touched on both of them briefly last episode. One is Jack and Grady in the bathroom because because I get to say something nerdy about cinematography that I noticed. What? Do you have more notes? Sorry, I'm thinking about colors. Oh, God. <laughs> this is not that unusual for the Peters and home, though. <laughs> hey, Bird, what do you want to do for dinner? And then Bird's just like, I'm thinking about colors. And I'm like, okay, awesome. And I order a pizza. Um, and I want to talk about the all work and no play sequence one more time. Oh, my God. Briefly. Because it, are you going, oh, my God, because it's so nuts? Because we love it. 
Okay, but can we start? And I hate it. Let's start with Jack and Grady because that because <laughs> that's when Jack cracks, right? So can I can I tell you a fun cinematography thing that I noticed during the Jack the Jack and Grady bathroom sequence? Yeah, I want to talk about the bathroom. Oh, did you notice it too? Oh, I don't know. Okay, so there's this famous thing, and I saw it last night, and I was like, I am learning, yay! Mm-hmm. There's a there's a famous rule in cinematography called the 180 degree rule. Do you know it? Oh yeah, if you cut to um, like the wrong angle after being at a certain place, it gets confusing and you lose. What, what the it viewer. is is when you're shooting with when you're shooting with two people on camera, wherever you wherever your quote unquote establishing shot is, once your actors are set and they start talking, wherever you're shooting from, the 180 degree rule says you cannot shift your camera more than 180 degrees in any direction. You can move it. You can move the camera around. That's how you achieve the over-the-shoulder shot, mm-hmm. right? Sure. But you don't quite go to 180 because if you go to 180 or beyond, you reverse the positions of the people on screen and it gets confusing for the audience. Which, yeah, you're right. They do do that. Yeah, Kubrick breaks the 180-degree rule, which puts <clears throat> Nicholson in Grady's position and you're Grady... You're not rooted as the viewer anymore. It you're kind of free floating in a weird it does like, it does make like a dreamlike feel yes. but what I, what i noticed specifically is it because he frames so carefully he gets everything framed up he frames so carefully that when he shifts the camera it doesn't it doesn't just reverse their position it transposes them where jack is where jack is well, grady jack is grady and he, grady is jack he so. is and kubrick does it visually in defiance of the 180 degree mm-hmm. rule it's one of the best you know how they always say uh, in art school, you have to know the rules before you can break them? Yep. Well, anything. In anything. Really. Yeah. Well, I've, I've always heard it applied to like painters. Writing. You have to, yeah. But yeah. like you, you have to learn how it's done so then you can do it your way. But you have to know the rules to break them. This is one of the best examples I've ever seen of an artist intentionally breaking a rule to cr- for to, effect yeah to create yeah. an effect and such a powerful one and not have it look like a mistake it's an intentional it's totally intentional choice. yeah and it only took him <laughs> 60 takes to get it right <laughs> <laughs> oh man working with him must be exhausting the bathroom the bathroom scene <laughs> was 60 takes <laughs> It's bananas. I'm sorry. So I I jumped over you to talk about the 180 degree rule, but you wanted to talk about the bathroom. Okay. Yeah. You said it's a Frank Lloyd Wright um, recreation, right? or or it's like heavily inspired by. But yeah, the the bathroom that that bathroom is modeled on is a Frank Lloyd Wright in the Biltmore in Arizona. I'm so curious what the original looks like and how it compares to this one. How they changed it, if they did. Yeah. Um. Are we going to talk about how the whole room is just red and white at all? Yeah, let's talk about it right now. Like the, the, I think the ceiling and the walls are blood red. Red, red. Red, 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 red. And then like the countertop or the sinks or something are also red. The countertop is red. The sinks are white and the floor is like It's like you are inside a cell in his brain it's like a what a great way to look at that oh you're so it's like surrounded by you're surrounded by blood or like flesh Mm -hmm. um i wonder so i wonder what the original room looks like because frank lloyd wright was famous 
for making rooms with very low ceilings. And this doesn't have a low ceiling, though I would expect a Frank Lloyd Wright bathroom to have a low ceiling. Right. One, because he was very short, mm. and also because he created sort of this weird um, feeling where you felt like you were in like a cozy little nest or like a little womb or something. Yeah, he used a lot of long horizontal lines to create mm-hmm. space because the ceilings were lower. I've seen I've seen like pictures of right. his stuff. You've, you've shown me pictures of his stuff and his plans, and he's a, mm-hmm. his architecture is amazing. There's a reason that ever, he's the one that everyone knows. Can you name another architect? Um, I mean, there's one that's associated Lautner. with NMU. John Lautner. Can you name a I third? I think it's George. George I think Lautner. it's John. I think it's John Lautner. John Lautner. Yeah, you are right. Is there a third architect? Sullivan. Oh, <laughs> now we're working. <laughs> we should at least know who did the Flatiron Building. Um, but yeah, okay. So, but there's a reason that everyone knows oh. Frank, Lo- Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, his houses yeah. are. Um, he's the Kubrick of architecture. No, I, I'm I'm just I'm just saying he's distinctive. Um, so I would ex- I would have expected the the ceiling in here to be low. Yeah, but it's not to create that kind of like privacy and kind of like that feeling of intimacy. But it's the ceilings in there seem fairly high, and I was just wondering if they changed it for the film or if it originally was like that. I don't know. I'm just I'm intrigued by that. Uh. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that he adapted it to his purposes. So mm-hmm. maybe the original and surrounding was, structures, probably. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that is actually um, that's one of the things I didn't I didn't overtly mention it when we were talking about the impossible geometry of mm-hmm. the the Overlook Hotel. But they did have a limited amount of space on the um, the sound stages, and Kubrick needed Danny to take like three left turns or four left mm-hmm. turns or whatever. So he does. He well, okay. This is we're gonna okay. So at one point. Danny does take, he does make a circle on his tricycle, mm-hmm. right? And he, when he is... But if they're not equidistant, you know, if it's not one block on each side, then you're not going to make a square. Right. You know, but, if it's longer on one side or whatever. Well, this is, this is going to become important in a second when we talk about the all work, no play. Danny makes counterclockwise circuits a couple times mm. in this movie. He makes a counterclockwise circuit, Okay. In the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy sequence, Mm -hmm. Jack chases Wendy in a counterclockwise circuit. And when Danny escapes Jack in the maze at the end of the movie, he makes a counterclockwise circuit and then doubles back on his own footsteps, which someone online pointed out was uh, like it's apparently a Native American tracker trip. Tri- trick thing but anyway he makes a counterclockwise circuit to close his foot st- or to tr- like almost close his footsteps off and then he goes back and jumps into the center of the maze and that's how he escapes so like he we keep seeing this like counterclockwise circuit thing but anyway the the hallways are partly made the way they are because kubrick needed f- like f- uh, practically, very practically, needed the actor Danny Lloyd to be able to make a series of turns. So that's how they had to build those those passageways and corridors. You look very thoughtful right now. I'm thinking about the nature of counterclockwise or anti anti clockwise versus yeah versus clockwise. It's very powerful magically. Yeah, left stirring to the left or working to the left is is negative with tarot cards you're meant to deal with the left hand toward the left 
cut to the left, and then restack the cuts with your left hand to the left. That's how tarot's meant to be dealt. Like Wittershins or counterclockwise or anti-clockwise is super magically important, which is just and a it, couple it, more pins also in the like bottom of our brain. Reversal or like, and I was also thinking about like hypnotism and like spiral staircases and things like that. I don't know. So, yeah. No. Yeah. I'm. I'm picking what up. What are thoughts right? happening? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the hereditary episode where we're just like, and another thing, and, and another thing, and this thing. Um. All right. So all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Oh, actually, before we get out of the bathroom, oh my god, I corrected them. I corrected her. Where have we fucking seen that guy? I don't know, but he, his name's Philip Stone, I think. I don't know why. We have definitely seen him in other shit. We have, but I don't know why his that name just like, whoop, into my head. I think his name's Philip Stone. He's not in my cast list, so I could be totally wrong. And if I'm wrong, don't hold me to it, but I think that's who that is. Um, But, uh... That sequence, especially Jack Nicholson's face. I mean, we talked about it for two hours in the last the last episode, but like, damn, dude, hit specifically Jack Nicholson's performance in there. The guy who's playing Grady, Philip Stone, I'm gonna call him, but the guy who's playing Grady, he's so good. He's so good. But and there's so much subtle acting going on between the two of them. There's this thing where Jack starts out as like. Grady, huh? Didn't you used to be the caretaker here, Grady? And he's doing that thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then it devolves further and further into like where he's, he looks like a man like having a, a, a break with reality, which is exactly what he, what is. he is. And because the mirrors are lit, like his face is washed in that like white light with that vibrant red behind him it's it's gourd it's beautifully shot and there's the contrast between his washed out face and the richness of the color behind him is gorgeous but it really all just even all of the masterful framing and set dressing that that kubrick is giving him to play with it really is just a plate for jack nicholson to serve that performance on you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's that scene is a hundred percent i mean and i'm not taking anything away from the actor who plays grady because i think he's genius in this moment but this scene is jack nicholson just working out you know what i mean oh oh it's beautiful it's his his facial expressions are are like it's 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 like oh damn it who were we with it's like it's like a Daniel Day Lewis level facial performance, or like a Boris Karloff as Frankenstein in the original nineteen thirty four Frankenstein, where he's not saying anything, but he's conveying with his face. Yeah. Can we talk about the cleaning up of the stuff? It would be super weird for me and maybe you to have somebody else clean something off of my body. But he just stands there like it's no problem, and he's totally comfortable, which... I think this is a whole... If you are cleaning your own clothes off, then... I think this is a holdover from an older Mm. time period, because I was thinking about, like, um, what's the... Downton Abbey. Like... But he's, like, the everyman. He's not, like, a... Jack. Yeah. Right. But but he is in a swanky hotel dealing with a... This man's a... He's a servant. 
You know, like this guy's, and also he's got the white gloves. He's fully in like butler attire. Well, yeah, he's supposed to be from 20, 1921. And, and also to to that actor's credit, he's very like, oh, just won't take a moment. Oh, except he's not though. Won't take a moment, sir. What? The Grady character isn't from the twenties. He killed his family ten years previous. I'm, so nineteen seventy. Sorry to be contrary to you, sir, but I have no recollection of that. I've always been here. This isn't. It's not really Grady. It's not really this him. Is, yeah. This is the supernatural element of the hotel. You know, like Grady's been swallowed by you've. Well, he tells Jack you've. It's always, Jack creating these things in his own mind. Yeah, but he well. Or, He's putting Grady in. Well, hold on, because in the in the book, it is very the hotel is very it's supernatural. Right. It's on an Indian burial ground, bird. They told us in the first twenty five minutes of the movie, but no, like um, yeah. So I don't know. Like I see what you're saying. It would be weird for me to have someone clean me off, and I was actually thinking about that last night. But if it was a butler and he had that very like this is literally my job, and he had the white gloves on, he might let it fly. You know, like that's part of what this guy's mm-hmm. job is. You know, um, so um, totally unrelated. Yeah, the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. If you just count up the number of letters, yeah, it's thirty three letters. Thirty three letters, and three comes up a lot in this movie. Mm. Well, did you know, Bird, that the L key is actually the one? Oh my so god! A one one Apollo eleven. No, um, <laughs> some other people noticed that uh, they were okay. What about dull? Through, through. Hmm? Hold on. Hmm? Well, that doesn't support that information doesn't support my theory, so we're going to discard it. Okay, it's exactly like Christianity. There's all this shit that I don't <laughs> like, so I just throw it away. And then there's a tiny one sentence about gay people that I'm gonna hold on to both hands in my one tooth. All right? Yeah, that that <laughs> one sentence about homosexuality, though, like in this movie. No. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Bible. That was pretty, actually, while we're talking about Grady and, and uh, Jack here, that was fairly shocking. I'd forgotten about the N-word in this movie. It kind of came out of nowhere and hit me in the nose, you know? I, I just wasn't ready for it, and I was like, whoa, whoa, Grady, Jesus, dude, it's 1980. It doesn't surprise me, though, that a character like Jack would say that. Yeah, or honestly, Grady. Say it to himself or say it to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it surprised me. Well, it's in it's in the book. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Um, but I was I just I it had been a while since I'd mm-hmm. seen this flick, um, and I always think of this movie in the same way that I think of movies like Jaws. You know, like these like masterpieces made by masterpiece directors. In a weird, this is going to sound strange, but the F word in this movie surprised me, even though I knew it was in here. But like every time Jack would say something like "Get the fuck out," you're like, "What?" <gasps> What? Isn't this a great piece of cinema? I don't I don't know why. Like that's totally a me thing um, that I'm bringing Wendy's to Wendy's line where she calls him a bastard or something. Um we're hit s- me that way. I was like, "Whoa." Yeah, where she Mom. S- she says a swear word. I know. It's and that, you know, again, maybe to Kubrick's credit. How many times have I said the F word in this episode? Like a hundred and ninety <laughs> probably, you know? Like I love that word. You're calling it the F word. <laughs> I am. Like Kubrick's got me like being weird about profanity, man. Like I've said extremely oh. harsh things on this on this series or on this show. But uh How many floors are there? Floors of the overlook. Three? Two? Mm. Two or three? 
somebody made there's people who you can go and read whole essays about the number of floors. I'm not joking. Somebody ta- somebody mentioned that in the famous all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy sequence, Wendy doesn't act until she reaches the second floor where room 237 is, where Danny was hurt. So until she gets to anyway, not important. But you know like there's ways that you break all this shit down. What I wanted to talk about was a couple things. One, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That was written. All of those sheets were typed by Stanley Kubrick's secretary. Love it. It took her months to do that. She probably hated it. Some people have gone through and and freeze framed the pages, Mm -hmm. and some of the there are typos. Obviously, you can see them all over the place. But some of them are all work and no play makes Jack adult boy. Adult Mm -hmm. boy. That is a recurring typo. Adult. Adult. And then there's. Whole essays you can read about that and what that means. And that's another way to... What people do is they find a little detail, blow it up to gem size, like prism size, and then watch the whole movie through that lens. And honestly, it's fascinating. Like someone... I did find... I didn't read it because it was like... The scroller bar was like that big. So it was like 200 pages. But someone wrote an essay about all work and no play make Jack adult boy. And they scanned the whole movie through that lens and wrote like their breakdown of The Shining. This is a what is that phrase from originally? It's a I looked it up and it's just like a common phrase that goes. No one knows where it originated. It's just like a a truism or whatever. You mm-hmm. know, it's just like a what would you call it? An aphorism? Uh, yeah. But it's just it's just like a common phrase. Uh-huh. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. It's mm-hmm. like a warning to you know not work too hard or you'll be boring. Because you won't have any fun. That's, you know, it's one of those things. Um, there's another cool thing in here where Lloyd says, women can't live with them, can't live without them. And this is a bit of context that would, lo- would be lost to history because we don't live in this time period anymore. But there was a joke made by a famous comedian a year before this movie came out. Mm-hmm. And the famous, it's now been repeated so often that it has also become a cliche. But at the time, it was fresh. Women can't live with them, can't kill them. That was a famous joke from this time period, which is now like, you've heard that. I've heard that. It's just like, it's a thing. But at the time, it would have been fresh in everyone's mind. So when Lloyd says Says that, they would have immediately thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. So Stanley Kubrick is using pop culture. He's making a sideways pop culture reference to make his audience think about Jack killing his wife. That's super clever. And well, also the "Here's Johnny" is a that, pop culture reference. That, that was an ad lib, and Kubrick, being English, wanted to cut it because he had no idea who Johnny Carson was. Really? In Sp- in the Spanish and German versions of this movie, that line has changed because they don't have Johnny Carson. Didn't at the time have Johnny mm-hmm. Carson over there either. It just didn't translate because no one knew who Johnny Carson was. It was like I was saying to you yesterday, which is now, if you say that to a young kid or to somebody on the street, like "Here's Johnny." Everyone thinks of The Shining. The Shining no right. one thinks of, jo- I mean, some people, but like most people think of The Shining before they think of Johnny Carson. He right. wrote popular culture. Right. Because most people our age, even slightly older, right. don't know of The Johnny Carson Show or don't think of it. It's crazy. It's more of an older generations thing. And that's, that's the beauty of something like a talk show is ephemeral. It's of its time and of its mm-hmm. moment. But when you make something timeless, like The Shining, 
any pop cultural bits that are rolled up into there are going to become part of it because right. it will last forever. I've never seen one episode of the Johnny Carson show. I think he had a monkey on sometimes. I know a lot of I people. I know nothing about it. Mr. Muggs was a, a show. I think that's his name. But yeah, it's just a show. It's just like a talk show thing. But one time, Jack Nicholson chopped through a door. Stuffed his face in a broken door. He chopped through a door with an axe. And he said, here's Johnny. Right before he was going to kick that door in and kill his wife. And everyone remembers it as among the most terrifying things ever put on screen. Johnny Carson can't compete with that. No. Sorry. (laughs) He just can't. You simply cannot. Um... And I mean, god damn. Okay, well, here, we're already there. So let's talk about chopping that goddamn door down with the axe. For those of you who don't know, Jack Nicholson was a longtime volunteer firefighter. So the prop department made him like a cheap ass door to chop through. They made him like a really wimpy one because they're like, oh, okay, well, he's an actor. Jack Nicholson went through the door so fast. He was through the door and into the room in, I think they said like under six seconds. And Kubrick was like, that ain't going to fly. So they gave him a normal door, like a, a an actual door, a real normal wooden door. Mm-hmm. He was through that in like 10 seconds. So then Kubrick's like, shit, Jack Nicholson was a firefighter and he can chop doors down like nobody's fucking business. So he had to have the props department. Yeah, He's actually like kind of beefy. He is. In this movie. He, if you look at him, like his thighs are thick. thick. He's thick. Yeah. He's, he's stout. He's very, he's a strong dude. So uh, they had to have the props department build a door that looked like a normal wooden door, but was reinforced. I think the way they did it was they they uh, applied wood interior cross grain. Yeah. Because Jack Nicholson can take a door down in like 10 goddamn seconds around 1980. So they built a reinforced <laughs> door that looked normal. And he was still going through it like pretty damn quick. Like... Um, oh, those shots of the axe going back and slamming mm. forward. The axe. Oh going my back. god, so good. Do you want to know who shot that? Did Stanley, Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick shot that himself. himself? Yeah. There's a. Oh god, damn it, man! I've got my brother and I watched this hungover one morning because Sam had never seen it. What an idiot, right? He'd never seen The Shining, so I was like, motherfucker, you gotta watch The Shining. So we're sitting there like drinking <laughs> beers, eight in the morning, feeling miserable, and we watched The Shining. And when we were done, Sam goes. Um, hey man, you want to watch that documentary? Because there's a making of on uh, the disc we have, uh-huh. and in Sam watched that all the way through. We did actually did the same thing. Sam got we, me and my brother got real drunk one night. It was when we were all living in the Brookton house, and our hangover thing the next day was uh, uh, reheated pizza, and we watched Jaws. Mm. And dude, like I love. That's one thing that like I'll never be able to get across on this show because Sam hasn't ever been on it, but I love watching movies with my brother. I love it. There's something about it goes back to my childhood. You know, like how many I think about it, before I knew any of the people I know now, who did I watch all the movies I watched with? Your dad would love to be on this show. I would love to get dad on for some Kurosawa flicks or some anime or anything. I tell I tell that story all the time on the show is like my first memories of mm. film. R7 Samurai, Godzilla, Lone Wolf and Cub. <laughs> like, as my dad showing me shit when I was like four. <laughs> I remember the Disney movies after Seven Samurai. Like, that's pretty wild. I saw some Clint Eastwood shit I should not have seen as a kid because of my dad. But um, but that's why I'm doing a movie podcast right now. But uh, yeah, so we watched the making of documentary. And it was the first time, because I knew of Stanley Kubrick, but mm-hmm. I'd only ever seen The Shining. 
Right. This is before I saw. No, wait. I saw 2001 as, at like five years old with my dad. Yeah, I saw it like unreasonably young. Uh, I didn't remember until recently. Like the first hour of that movie is like all monkeys. Anyway, not important. We're talking about The Shining. But like one of the things I learned hungover with my brother in the Brickton house was Stanley Kubrick is super, super hands on with the cameras. He has a picture in his head Mm -hmm. and he's working to make that picture come out. Like one of my favorite things about Kubrick's shooting style is the lines, man. Like it's boxes and everything is straight and meticulous, which makes him look very cold sometimes. A lot of people complain about his visual style as being like antiseptic and unfeeling because Mm -hmm. it's so angular. But I think it's very visually interesting. But uh, there's a great shot. There's that famous shot. I pointed it out to you when Jack has the head injury and he's leaning on the door. He's going, Wendy, I think you hurt me real bad. Oh, yeah. You need a doctor, Wendy. And it's shot from below him. Yeah, Yeah. it's like on the... Worm's eye view. Yeah. You can see in the making of documentary, Stanley Kubrick with his viewfinder, he's in dry storage mm-hmm. trying to figure out, what about, oh, no, this doesn't work. No, this doesn't work. And then you see him Finding like, the angle. Mm-hmm. he sits for a second and thinks, and I, I swear to God, and this is just a, it's a thing I do, but when I saw, he, you can see the moment when he comes up with the shot and I like mm. rolled a tear. I cried because <laughs> oh I was like, it's, it's one of those iconic shots that you see it and it's so brilliant that you're like yes and you in the documentary you get to see the moment where he goes hey let me try something and he lays down on the ground with the viewfinder and looks straight up at the door and he goes yeah yeah this will do and you're like that's why that shot's in that you see the moment mm-hmm. happen and i just cried dude i was like fuck yes stanley kubrick you're a genius but yeah that the the axe he he ran the the pan yeah and that's then good. he gets when Jack gets into the room, I mean, Danny, you know, Danny gets out the bathroom window, mm-hmm. that like tiny bathroom window. I, let's talk about this particular moment. Wendy with the knife, cow crushed against the wall, screaming, Jack, Jack, no, Jack. Just, she's hysterical. I think Shelly Duvall, because she's saying Jack, she might be saying Jack Nicholson, stop breaking the door down right. because she's so gone in her own terror. She, that's, she's horrified. And you see the door bang out as the axe hits. And then you see the axe, like the tip of the blade come through. And and she like hides her face so that I think she's scared, one. And two, like she doesn't want stuff in her face. But she knows that she has to look back. One, to see what's going to happen, yeah. and two, because that's where the camera is. So, There's, like, as an actress, you have to keep I've always you know, read, acting towards I, it. I love this moment. I think this right here, <laughs> this sequence, this shot, the shot past the door with the axe in the foreground and Wendy in the back, I firmly believe that that shot is the high point, the apex of The Shining. I think that is the moment that defines the rest of this film as is it's perfect. It's an utterly perfect shot. The blinding white bathroom and that dark door and the blade popping through and all there's there's all these browns outside and Jack is outside and just the the moments where Wendy turns her face to the wall. She'll like touch the wall with her hand and she like mashes her face into this wall. And like if she could burrow into that wall. It's like a child burying their face in their mother's apron Mm. that's how i've always read that is just like she wants to nuzzle into something to take her from this horrific moment and then we get that beautiful whip pan of jack outside Mm -hmm. hacking the door to pieces and then there's the great shot straight on the door 
and Jack chopping through towards the camera and towards us and you see the axe go back and when it hits you want to jump back from the screen because it's coming at you it's just it's such a it's a high point it's masterful it's a high point for horror period it's amazing it's so amazing and then then the movie has its we, I will say it is it, it, it we reach the one weakness that I find in this film um let's talk about Halloran's death Ugh. it's the only it's the only part of this it bothers that just, me so much it even it it has always mm. bothered me too um <clears throat> Before I ever saw The Shining, I saw the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror sketch <laughs> called The Shinning. The Shinning. Oh, my God. Well, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Groundskeeper Willie's talking to Bart, and he's like, you've got The Shinning. And he goes, don't you mean The Shining? Quiet. Do you want to get sued? <laughs> so it's The Shinning. And every time they say it, they all look sideways at each other because they know what they're really saying. But, um... Groundskeeper Willie plays Dick Halloran in the skit, and when he shows up to the Overlook, he walks in the door and he goes, "Where are you, boy?" And he gets an axe right in the back, like the second he comes through the door and hits the ground, and he's dead. And I think that's the Simpsons pastiching what we're about to complain about, which is why in the fuck would we have a twenty-minute montage sequence of, oh no, Mr. Halloran gets a. Oh, he's getting a premonition. Oh, he's gonna. I'm gonna make a call. Oh, we need to get on the radio. I'm gonna. He buys a plane ticket. He rents a car. He goes and gets a snowcat. He drives through a blizzard. He gets in the snowcat. Drives through another blizzard. By the way, that snowcat up the hill. So cool. Real. So cool. Is the only time that they actually like did anything in real snow. They drove a snowcat up a mountain to a thing. But like to a thing. I don't know. They. I think I read maybe that they were actually. That's like actually the lead up to the stand in for the overlook the like front exterior but um yeah so like so he brings the snowcat up he parks the snowcat right out the window where wendy is trapped in and then he goes in the door and he he's like hey anybody here and he doesn't get to do anything before he's murdered by jack torrance and you pointed out he only you said he only exists to bring them another snowcat to escape in yeah and what i think is uh, it's even worse than that he's literally he's a deus ex machina literally he's the he's the he's the god in the machine the machine being the snow cat Mm -hmm. but he's the only reason wendy's not dead that bugs me because when you look at that sequence when we cut to jack like he stops chopping and he like looks and he's listening to the snow cat Mm -hmm. both door panels are gone he could have just got in there. Yeah, he's like, he's she, like. I mean, she chopped him, but she, yeah, she cut him with the knife, and it hurt his hand. But there. if Jack hung out in that room for another sixty seconds, he could kick the door in, and he's got an axe, and she's a small woman. Wendy was one t minus one minute from being dead, and for some reason, when he hears the snowcat, he just abandons his like, almost just kidding. Pro- yeah. yeah, it's. It's the only moment in the movie, and you know what? It's such a bummer because, for me, it comes right at the end of the best moment in the film. The lowest point comes immediately after the high point. I'll never take anything away from that chopping sequence, but the next thing that happens is, like, this weird flaw in an otherwise more or less flawless film. Yeah. Dick Halloran should not, if you're going to bring him up, he has to do something before you kill him. Right. But he doesn't do anything. If you, yeah, give me give me five minutes of Dick Halloran making a difference, and then kill him, and then I'm okay. 
because he at least served a purpose. But all he's here to do is make it so that Jack has a reason to not kill Wendy and give him a snow cat to escape. I think it's I think it's weak. I think it's a weak choice yeah. in a very strong film. And it's not weak enough for me to even take half a star away. I will still say The Shining is five out of five for me. I won't even take a half star. We should have rated it during the break. We'll go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, here what we'll do is at the end we'll uh, we'll say our goodbyes and stuff, and then I'll stop it. We can go rate okay, it, and cool. we'll give people our rating. But yeah, like I, I don't know, I don't like Holleran's death very much, and yeah. uh, I. But but after that, okay, Holleran dies, and we already talked in the last episode about how fucking impressive it is that Nicholson practiced with a real axe. And then mimicked it with a fake axe to make it look like it's got weight. It's even shot well. Dick Halloran dying is pretty cool. Like yeah. if it if it just had a little more weight to it, you know. Um, one of the things I really like, but we're almost to the end of the movie at this point. But one of the things I really like is that at this point, after that high moment of full terror, Wendy starts to see the stuff that Jack sees, and the fact that Wendy sees it, yeah, like. Oh man, and the stuff she sees is cool. Some of it is very Kubrickian, like the weird bear dog suit guy giving the former owner of the Overlook Hotel a blowjob in a street. And we do that. <laughs> I said it last night, but I love the 1980s rack zoom. It's just, it's just a, it's a filmmaking. Move it's very um, of its time. Jim Jarmushy in an otherwise so not not Jarmish. Um, Wes Anderson. It is Wes Andersony. Yeah. Um. I've always thought, especially how they like sit up into frame. Like that's such a him thing. Yeah. They they sit up and it like rack focuses in on them. But like, you know. And I wouldn't be surprised oh if Wes God. Anderson was a Kubrick fan because who's another guy who shoots a lot with miniatures and is very careful that's with true. his framing. He uses a lot of ang- obsessive use of color, obsessive attention to detail. Wes Anderson is famous for like background tracking shots, very horizontal long, tracking shots. Minute. Yep. I think Wes Anderson is a Cooper <laughs> fan, like big time. Cause who else does dollies like he does? I, it's like Kubrick and Wes Anderson. And like, actually, no, there's a couple, there's a couple like old Western directors who used to use dollies, but you can see Kubrick and Anderson like yeah. as, as birds of a feather for mm-hmm. sure. No, I like the, you know, who else does it is, Elliot Rocket, the DP on um, House of the Devil, which we talked about last episode. But um, House of the, the Devil. The first half? Yeah, the first half of this episode. <laughs> but um, when we watched House of the Devil for the first time, that takes place in like 1981 or whatever. And we talked about it, you and I did when we first saw it, that it's such a perfect, it looks like it was shot in the 80s. Yes. We thought it yeah. was an 80s film until we the movie was done and I was in Voodoo and it was like 2006. And I was like, What? Is it like re-released in 2006? But no, they paid such close attention to even the even the cinematography choices from the 80s because no one does that anymore. No one does a a rack zoom. You know, that's an 80s. They should though. They should. It's great. <laughs> it's like an 80s camera move. It's and such it, a uh, nostalgic. Yeah, it gives it your, gives you a feel. It gives your movie a a certain feel. Yeah. As soon as you do it, because it's such a it's an it is an outdated camera yeah. move now but it, it's a good one it shouldn't be outdated it should be in widespread use but what effective else effective use effective use what else does wendy see wendy sees the former owner of the does she see the um the elevator she does she sees mm-hmm. she's the one who sees the elevator blood happen 
There's something going on outside. There's a giant crow outside. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. You can't. Carl spooks me by looking at stuff behind me sometimes, too. I'm like, what? What is it? Is it the cops? Jiggas, it's the cops. Um, the maze chase. So Wendy, mm. Wendy gets out and gets to the snowcat, basically. Danny is pursued by his father after Dick Allen dies horribly, stupidly. You know, the only other thing he serves to do is like tell the audience what exactly The Shining is. He does, yeah. Kind of. Well, he's got some pretty sexy pictures on his wall in his apartment. Oh, dude, yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would the giant fro. Oh, my God. I would give that a half star for Babe Factor. Just those pictures <laughs> on the wall, dude. Those are sultry. Um, all right, so so let's we're to the end. So let's wrap the movie up here with the maze chase. I think that's awesome, especially because of the cool fig rig shooting where they're doing that super 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 low angle following Danny as yeah. he's running through the maze, and we fe- we are pursuing him. Um, it's got, oh my we god! Are, wait, 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 and we are not Jack pursuing him. Wait, hmm. yeah, who is pursuing Danny? Who's dangerous to Danny? It's Jack, right? Mm-hmm. We're chase. We, the viewer, are chasing Danny. Danny. We talked in the last in part one about how Danny's the only one who's ever ahead of a dolly shot. Mm-hmm. He's the only one who's ever being pursued or being chased. Mm-hmm. And in the end, maybe this, maybe this is like Jack's tie being a nod to the end. Maybe, maybe the end is revealing why Danny's ahead. Maybe the whole time. Who ultimately is chasing Danny? It's Jack. It's his dad. But Jack has always been the danger to Danny. Yeah. So maybe when Danny's peddling his thing, you know, peddling his his tricycle around the the overlook, maybe we are like the essence of Jack chasing him around the maze. It's definitely a foreshadowing because it's exactly the same shots. Knowing Kubrick, I wouldn't be surprised if the turns that Danny takes in the maze match up with the turns that he takes in oh, his tricycle. Fuck. <laughs> oh, I know we got to watch shit. this movie like 10 or 11 shit. more times and write a thesis on it. But like, cause he does, he takes a lot of lefts and then, it, and then a right. And I feel like he does the same thing in the maze. You know what I mean? Um, shit. Jack Nicholson's um. vocal performance Ooh, is amazing. It cause it goes from like, Danny, Danny to like, and by the end, he you can tell that he's saying Wendy. That's the, those are like some of the last words he's saying is his mm-hmm. wife's name, but like it's coming out like. Wendy. He's like a wounded beast. He's uh, not even human anymore. Yeah, it's or even some primordial. Yeah, it's scary, and, but it is sublime. It's oh yeah, it's. It's perfect. I know. I wish we had a video, a video component because you keep doing. I do the, the chef kiss. You do the chef kiss, and mwah, it's just mwah, it's mwah, when. Je- <laughs> and that's how I, that is how I feel. Like there's a magnifico. My God, in the all work and no play sequence when he's mocking Wendy, I just, I'm just so confused. I'm just, I'm so confused. Wendy, the way that he pitches his voice like up and down and. We, Every once in a while, he'll get that. Oh my! When he's having the nightmare, when his head is down, and he what? What are you doing? What is that movie where I feel like it's um fucking? What is his name? Nicholas Cage. No, nope. you were doing the yes, you were doing the head yes! flop from it's Vampires. Exactly what it's it was. Vampires Thank Kiss. You. Yes. 
<laughs> what is he saying? Oh. He's, he's saying like, too late. And he's, he's saying, he's saying lines. There you are. I'd watch Vampires Kiss again, like right now. Oh, oh my God. What a good no. movie. But like, it's that same thing happening. He, that descent into madness. It's the same as in Vampire's Kiss. Well, you know me. I, I, we, you can listener if you want to hear a really interesting take on a movie that too most late. people too, too late. late. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what he's saying. What his hair's flopping because <laughs> she found the file, but it wasn't in time. So he's flopping his head back and forth, going, "It's too, too late for Danny. Late. Too late." <laughs> Chases her. Oh, oh dude come on God. that's right before that that's when she passes out and he sh- puts a gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger twice yeah okay if you want it listeners that is one of my favorite conversations about a movie ever go back in the feed and find our vampire's kiss episode it's you me <sighs> and carl dissecting what is yeah either i wish i could it's like either go the, back and what we talk about that scene that sequence yeah in particular why what do you i don't know i feel like my being very wanting to have um black and white right. in that scene what exactly happened um i don't know i feel like it did that scene a disservice and uh i guess diminished what the character alva goes through in that scene and by proxy women who are assaulted so i guess this is me trying to I don't know. To work through that. Trying to apologize for having really quickly needing be- distinction there. Because we are basically at the end and the to be honest, I think that the movie the very 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 end of the movie is kind of like a it's actually a, a complaint that a lot of people have about Stephen King. I almost feel like um like Kubrick didn't know where to step off. He didn't quite know how to end it. Yeah, cuz yeah. it's like Jack Nicholson's frozen face and then we hear the party music and then we zoom in on a picture on the wall and it's Jack Nicholson's airbrushed face and he he has always been there since 1921 July 4th you know he was at the party and it the ending is very ephemeral in an otherwise well you know it's it's dreamlike it's dreamlike yeah it fits the movie and I honestly don't think I would change it but I, I have never been able to really get my hands around it you know it's it's slippery the end of this the very end of this movie is very slippery um you know anyway that's that's what i was thinking but what i I wanted to do was what what day did you say that this ends december 11th 11th yeah um what i wanted to really before we jump all the way off of it and start doing our like wrap-up trivia which i think i only have like three or four of those um Having re- recently rewatched Vampire's Kiss with John and Casey mm-hmm. the last time they were here, do you feel any differently about that? Having watched that episode after our discussion of it, because we did that, we watched the movie, had the big talk, um, which you know, listeners, if you haven't listened to it, I argued that it's actually like a heartbreaking, really well constructed look at a man descending slowly into madness that effectively blends comedy into like small amounts of absurdist tragedy to become horror um and then we rewatched it with two of our two of our friends and it is funny but like it yeah after our discussion of it i i can't see it as just a funny um i don't know it's kind of like lost some of its glitter for me i guess in a good or bad way 
I think the movie became became stronger for me once I started considering it seriously. It's, yeah, I, I definitely consider it to be a better film. Um, I don't know if I would just like pull it out and be like, oh, let's watch that funny movie. That's why I put it on for John and Casey. Is yeah. Nicholas it's Cage- not like watching like a ah, clue or something like that. Right. Where it's just kind of like funny and like ridiculous and uh, fluffy. Yeah, it's, it's not, not fluffy. It's anymore not fluffy. The the moment that it stopped being that for me is when he when he commits a murder. You're like, oh my god, he killed a woman in a club. You're like, this is not a funny bit here, but it's a hilarious movie because it is though. Because then he like too late to am I getting through to you, Alma? Alva. Alva. All right. Walking in, smoking a cigarette, sunglasses on. Um, mescaline's a hell of a drug. Mescaline's a hell of a drug. <laughs> You seemed kind of off yesterday. Oh, yeah. Mescaline. And she's like, oh, yeah. I've been- I remember doing that in my teen years. <laughs> and he looks at her like, really? Um, All right. I have some trivia about The Shining that I wanted to walk through with you. Okay. You and I both, like, lost our minds. You know, gently lost our minds during the, the moment when Danny is playing with his toys on the rug. And the tennis ball rolls in and oh, bumps into him. Perfect. Bird does the chef hand mm. kiss. Mwah. It really is. You know why it's yeah. perfect? Because Kubrick made him do it 50 times. Oh, my God. Because he had to get Danny moves the thing. He moves one toy, and then he links the other toy, and he makes a small link of toys. And if you'll notice, the toys line up with the carpet pattern. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's like mini golf, basically. Mm-hmm. Um. There's another shot in here, allegedly. Actually, I won't talk about that one because I didn't see it myself. I didn't even okay. see the shot. But there's a apparently a shot where Nicholson is bouncing the ball off the wall. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick wanted a shot where the ball bounced off the wall, flew back, and hit the camera lens. And they had to shoot it. Apparently, it exists somewhere because what they would... I don't remember that. What they would do is they, they just said... I don't remember it either. I feel like I would have been like, huh... But what apparently what they would have felt clunky. I know. That's what I'm saying is I didn't see it in the movie, but I read this bit of trivia three different places because what they did was they set up a camera and then they just ran it. And in between takes of other scenes, crew members would come and throw the ball. And it took them like months to lucky hit the camera lens because they were trying and it. Oh, I missed. Oh, I missed. So it got to a point where they're like, we can't keep burning time on this. So they dedicated a camera and crew members would just come and try their luck until they nailed it that's what i i read that somewhere but i don't remember that shot in the movie so i anyway do you think I, it's been cut i, I think maybe it was in a previous kubrick version kubrick did cut 24 minutes out of this huh. the first version of this that he showed did not test well and he cut 24 minutes and that's what we ended up with which means that this that would movie be a super fucking long movie three hours it would have been oh. My God. Yeah, it would have been 44 minutes. So actually, our episode is over three hours. So, um, okay. So the ball rolling into the toy took 50 takes. I thought that was amazing. Uh, That fucking carpet. Oh, my God. It's gorgeous. Um, It's labyrinthine, just like everything else. Bird suggested last night, which I really like, that we make our floor in our whatever house we end up in, whether it be our yurt or our dream house or whatever, somehow make the floor whether it be tile or rug or whatever make i was gonna just paint it paint it yeah uh, i'm totally in but in we're that gonna, pattern yeah, yeah we want to do the overlook hotel floor in or our, even that that wave one in the um 
237. Oh, it, yeah. Two, 237. The design of that room is great. I love it. I do too. I it's love gr- it so it's, much. <laughs> it's a creepy room because it's meant to look creepy, but like also at the same time, because you've shown me so much design, I look at it and I'm like, oh, I'd, I'd spend a couple of nights there. Look at the luxuriant bathroom. I gotta do something with a rotting old woman in the tub, mm-hmm. but once we get her out of housekeeping. Yeah, a little bit of ammonia in there and a Glade plug-in, and this could be a great <laughs> <laughs> little... Uh, honeymoon spot um okay two second bit the mm-hmm. o- remember the overhead shot of the maze where jack is looking down at the mm-hmm. the like the miniature he's looking at the miniature yeah. and he sees danny and yes yeah. you know how they do you know how they got that uh it's helicopter in- no it's incredible that is a that is the miniature kubrick shot the miniature from like six feet overhead mm-hmm. right and then he figured he had someone he they figured out the the uh, translated perspective how high up in the air you'd need to be to actually it's a lot of math. Yes, it's a lot of math. Well, dude, Kubrick's a psychopath. Did you know that the L key is actually a one on a typewriter? <laughs> There's a lot of math in this movie. All right, so he figured out how high you'd have to be to get that perspective of the maze because there was no actual maze they built a maze and it was just like it was just like slats with fake trees are grown around it basically so they they didn't have a big maze to shoot so they shot the miniature then they found an empty parking structure did they lay it over it's a composite shot no. Yes, it's a composite shot. No. They they shot down and it's it's Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd walking through an empty parking lot in the pattern that like chalked pattern of the maze at the exact right height to make a composite shot. So that is actually Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd inside the miniature. That's why it looks so real. That's why it looks so much like them in the miniature. It is. Come on, dude. That Talk about bird does another chef's kiss. Like that is that's amazing. Oh my god! <laughs> this is this is like having the syringes in the. This cupboards. is why we don't have great movies anymore. Yeah, because it's all CG now. Motherfuckers don't do this stuff. <laughs> the amount of hate CG. Think about the time. Think about how long that must have. Think about how much work went into that. Ten seconds of this movie, but it's one of the ten seconds that build to be a masterpiece. You know what's weird? I was thinking about this the other day. We don't really have masterpieces anymore. No. What's the most recent movie you can think of that is like a masterpiece? That's not Hereditary. Hereditary is clearly the most recent movie we can think of. Because that was like, what, 2018? No, because Halloween was 2018. And fucking, it was 2019. But uh, Halloween 2019, I'd say that's a horror masterpiece. But I'm talking about one of these. One of the Shinings. And the last one I can think of is Hunger. But that's not a widespread movie. You know what I mean? 12 Years a Slave. Again, that's like a Oscar movie and it has weak points and it does con- oh, have so some... so does this movie. It does, but there's a feel that this movie has. You, you know a masterpiece when you're watching it. Jaws. When you see Jaws for the first time, you're like, this is a different kind of thing. Oh, what do you got? Yeah. I'm going to say this. Mm-hmm. I think CG is the bane of film existence i think it's a lazy sloppy choice that a lot of filmmakers make because it's cheaper than doing the actual work and i think films suffer for it all right 
we're gonna. There are exceptions, of course, of course. As with anything, yeah. Uh, but... Gollum in the Lord of the Rings was pretty cool. It's fucking Andy Circus though. Andy Circus like, doesn't count. He Andy... acted the wheels off of it. Andy Circus is the only thing that can make CG work. Okay, but you need. Yeah, they literally like. <laughs> He did everything. <laughs> you need to have Andy Circus as the thing that is CG or it's going to fail. Because, yeah, you kind of, I'm looking at you right now and you're pro- are, is any part of you thinking about his performance as Caesar in the remakes of the Planet of the Apes movies? Because No, I was thinking about how <laughs> shitty the Golden Compass was. Oh, yeah, that CG was bad. It's like all CG. Let's have a, mo- let's have a, let's have a measuring flicks. This is a wow! You have an anime <laughs> eye twitch. This is like the where like you everyone else has the black lines that mean that they're all nervous. And there's one. We've been car- watching a lot of anime, guys. A fucking Sorry. lot because we've been taking Japanese lessons. It's true. But um, here CG. Let's talk about this really quick. Yes. One of the things that I think, having watched, we're into three seasons of Measuring Flicks mm-hmm. now, and I've been a film fan since I was four, as I've said. Mm-hmm. One of the things that always pushes the ball down the field in movies for me is when an independent movie or even a big movie runs into a budget problem so like famously i know you and i disagree heavily on this movie but the famous example i always use is night of the living dead but you can pick any other movie okay you run into a problem Mm -hmm. kevin smith i think i learned this or i heard this originally on a kevin smith podcast you run Mm -hmm. into a problem when you're a big hollywood director you just throw money at it until you can do what you originally wanted to do, right? Mm-hmm. But before Hollywood, this is why I like indies so much. When you bang into a problem and you don't have the money, it's like fixed first poetry. You bang into a problem and you can't dump money on it to fix it. You have to come up with something new and it forces you to be uh, to use ingenuity, imagination, and creativity to solve a problem mm-hmm. rather than cash. Yeah. CG has removed the need to think creatively because it's cheap. Sure. So when you bang into a problem, you just throw $10,000 at two guys with a computer and they just do the, they do like a shittier version of what was in your head and you call it good rather than being like, okay, Stanley Kubrick is a perfect example. In the original novel, it's topiary animals that move. Mm-hmm. There is no maze. Oh my God. It's giant, like, it's like giant, um, like giraffes and elephants and the the plant animals like move around but he tried to figure out how to do that with special effects and it was too much money what animatronics i'm just picturing it and it's so good so he he uh, but, but that a lot more practicals but that's what he was trying to do he was trying to because it's 1980 he was trying to figure out how to do that practically and he didn't have the money because he was already we know how much money this fucking movie He built cost. the whole set. He built the whole set and kept it lit and ready to shoot for all of the time. Almost a full year. Like, yeah, yeah, this was expensive. So he didn't have money for these. So he goes, shit, 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 shit. And rather than be able to say like, hey, CG me some dog shit animal plants, he made a maze. And then he put the maze in the tie. And then he made the hotel a mirror of the maze. And then he brilliantly did physics to shoot a perfect composite of a miniature of a maze do you see what i'm saying yeah if he had had the money to dump onto bullshit cg topiary animals we would not be talking about the shining right now that's true and now this is why we don't have modern masterpieces is people take their first idea and then they push it through using cg rather than be like we don't have the money to do this so what if we (gasps) 
what if we and then there that second idea mm-hmm. that you never would have come in come across if you just been able to solve your problems quick and bang mm-hmm. bang bang let's pump some shit out so people can go buy popcorn and movie tickets oh shit we hit a problem let's think our way around it sometimes thinking your way around it dude you trip and fall into a masterpiece jaws oh i was gonna say star wars yeah yeah there you go but like i I can't believe i didn't think of this before but jaws is a perfect example they built an animatronic shark the shark was supposed to be all through the movie like here's the big shark the shark eats a person but the animatronic shark was shitty and it kept breaking and they didn't have the money to fix it so didn't it disappear for a while too after the movie but like so they had this big shark right and it was it didn't work and it looked bad on Uh camera so what they did was spielberg goes to john uh john williams and goes i can't show the shark because it looks like shit and it doesn't work make me a score that means shark and that is where you get bottom bottom and if steven spielberg had just been like hey cg guy make me a cg shark we'd get sharknado we would not have Jaws <laughs> if it wasn't for problems that are not solvable oh, by CG. Man. CG is just a cheap way to realize a shitty vision. I'm with you 100%. And watching The Shining just reaffirm because there's not there's not a lick of CG in this motherfucker. And it's Mm-mm. it's top what what would you say top ten horror movies? It ever? was my number one horror pick. That's why we picked this as the yeah the, the thing that um David had us do. <clears throat> so this was so you would you would confidently put this in the five best horror films ever made yeah yeah me too I would. me too absolutely 100 percent. and it and you know what we w- wouldn't have watched it two times if it had had cg as an option i'm with you i'm with you I, I love that uh and one more thing because i just could not could not pass this up once i found this out 1977 a little movie comes out 1977 probably Another of my top five horror films of all time. David Lynch's debut, Eraserhead, comes out in 77. And uh, Stanley Kubrick watches Eraserhead. And Eraserhead becomes Stanley Kubrick's favorite film. No! So Stanley Kubrick gets together the entire cast and crew of The Shining. And he says, guys, we're going to make this movie called The Shining. Now turn your attention to my screening room screen. We're going to get you in the right mood. And he screened Eraserhead for everybody. And he said, that is the feeling we're going to make with The Shining. You've never even seen Eraserhead. I haven't been able to make it through (laughs) any part of Eraserhead. It's too squishy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we'll figure out. It's warpy. I can't do it. Well, you know, maybe that'll be my birthday pick for, uh... I'm going to need a bucket. (laughs) A glorpy, slicky bucket. Anyway, I thought that was pretty cool. And knowing that, especially have Carl and I having talked about it, and I watched all the special features, like the attention to lighting. That's a big, that's a big part of Eraserhead. Is what made it famous. Is the mm-hmm. those sharp blacks. Um, it took some of the shots took fourteen hours just to do the lighting, just to get the lights right, and then they'd shoot for like ten seconds. Done. That's why the movie took five years to finish. All right. So yeah, but like. That's The Shining. One more little fun fact that I, I forgot to talk about. Um, all the Overlook, we talked about how all the Overlook interiors were shot on a soundstage, including the Colorado room, which is the room that Jack Torrance writes in. So I was reading online and I, I told Bert about this because it's one of those like, you don't think about how movies 
work from a practical standpoint. So in the Colorado room, to achieve the effect of a bright, snowy day outside, you know those big, if you've seen the movie, there's big, gigantic windows, like these big gothic windows. Um, each of those windows had 700,000 watts of lighting gear like aimed at them to create the effect of that brilliant white snowy day. So each of those windows, 700,000 watts, near the end of shooting, the lights overheated and caught the set on fire. So the studio, you know, they got it put out. Nothing really super bad happened, but, you know, and Kubrick was already done shooting in the Colorado room. So they, when they tore it down, they used that opportunity because it had been damaged by fire. They tore it down and made the ceiling a little bit taller the Colorado room, that um, that soundstage, that room became the Well of Souls in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So when they look, when Sala and Indy look down the hole, Asps, very dangerous, you go first. That sequence, <laughs> the room they're looking down into is the same space that Jack Torrance was typing, all work and no play make Jack a dull, makes Jack a dull boy. Same space, same set. Is that not amazing? I love movie shit. You like know that. I love it. We all do. Okay, so uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was The Shining. We just we just talked our way through, and you know, um, this was a really long one. But you're always such a fucking champion about this. You did like seven hours on Hereditary, <laughs> you know. Um, and the movies that we're planning to watch after this are not going to be quite so intensive as The Shining. The Shining's no. a big one, and I I think that Carl and I can do it again, and probably not retread a lot of the ground that we talked about or that we covered already. So, uh, yeah. Do you have any final closing thoughts? Are you looking for the set designer? I totally am. How did you know? Because I saw you write a note that said oh. set designer, and then you walked away, and then you got your phone, and then you went on IMDb, and I just assumed that you were looking for the set designer. Um, <laughs> and now I'm vamping as you find the name. I'm trying. All right. Uh, we already thanked our patrons. So, patrons, how are you all doing? Drop us a line. Let us know. Uh, do, you, do you have anything else, Boo? Because we're going to... No, but we do need to rate this movie and so then come back. Why don't we do that? We'll pause it. You find the set designer's name. We'll rate this movie in our little oh. brown book of horror. Right. And when we come back, we'll have all of the information. <laughs> we'll say our goodbyes. Perfect. And we'll let people know anything else they need to know. <laughs> all right. So we will return to you after this short uh, commercial break. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you bought lots of soap um, <laughs> or whatever we advertised. <laughs> so we um, we uh, rated the film. We rated The Shining. And we ended up with a score of four and a half, which... What's the absolute most that a film could get? Including the bonus point, a film can technically score six stars. We've only had, I think, two movies ever do it. Um, and I don't want to look through because we've rated a lot of movies, but sure. it's very rare that you get a six star movie. It's actually pretty rare that we even get five star films. True. 
and we're big fans. And we did also talk about how our rating system does have some built-in inherent flaws, which we it's clunky sometimes. Yeah. yeah, it is a it's a good it's still fun. it's rudimentary. Yeah, it's rudimentary and it's fun. <clears> and we <throat> I, we set off Mike since we had our seven year anniversary two days ago. We've actually been we have it's a brown notebook. And we actually have been rating movies in it since before we were even engaged. We've been rating movies in it since like the third month we were dating, <laughs> which was almost 11 years ago now. Yeah. So we've been doing, we've been rating horror movies together <laughs> for quite a long time. Um, all right. So we gave Plot half a star. And this was actually, we agonized over this a little bit. Yeah. But the Dick Halloran bit, the fizzle, the slight fizzle at the end there's a couple things wendy surviving um mostly it was dick halloran that cost the movie the half star again in my personal mm-hmm. my personal rating and my heart is five stars i'm just going to keep it at five stars but in our rating book we gave the plot a half a star gore is cl- oh go ahead we don't allow anything to have like a quarter of a star or three quarters it's either zero zero half, half or, or one. one yeah so gore was a one obviously yeah. it's amazing the chopped up little girls and the axe the blood elevator the even dick halloran's death like mm-hmm. th- the gore in this is great um tension jump scares one character this is our another half star we gave characters mm-hmm. a half star kind of because we had noticed some flatness uh what what was your thinking because we we agreed on a half star but you were thinking more like a 0.75 was it just yeah i was thinking well i think that he was dealing in archetypes and i don't personally have a problem with it i do see that a lot of people do have a problem with it and i do see the characters as being flat but i don't right i don't mind it and i think think it Sir, I think it's purposeful. I think you were, and I think you were right too when you said, "Like, I wish mm-hmm. I could give this a point nine or a point seven because I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. The character half star is in no way a reflection on the performances. No, 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 no. no because we, no, we yeah. kind of have always wrapped performances into our next category, which is production. It's the whole package, the production value. How well is it shot? Is the sound design good? And any anything lacking. Production for me is always kind of the rating I look at. Because that... If you have shitty characters, but the production is crazy slick, sometimes that'll save it. You know, if the gore is low and the plot's just okay, but the production is awesome. You know, um, I like Jack Nicholson. Yes, the Jack Torrance character doesn't have much of an arc. Right. But God damn it, is that a powerhouse performance? Mm-hmm. You know, like the performances mm-hmm. are not being critiqued here, but the characters, the way they're written and their arcs, after some discussion, we agreed that it is a half star. Production value is clearly a fucking one because it's The Shining. We're talking about The Shining. This is this is one of the most famously, perfectly pro- produced movies it's ever. It's not one of the great horror films for nothing. Yeah. The production is flawless. It's incredible. Um, and then Bird did allow me a half star <laughs> for Babe Factor, which Bird and I wrote into the rules pretty early on because we kept noticing that we were, <laughs> there's these movies, these horror movies we'd watch that would just suck. But every time, but if they threw in a pair of like tits, if there was like nice boobs that just flew across the screen, 
it always did leave you feeling a little better about the movie. So I said, you know what? It's like part of, and since we only do the, the in this book, it's only it's horror It's part movies. of the genre. It is. Yeah. So like, look, if a movie's not good, but it throws me a little nudity, we'll chuck a babe factor in. We've given half stars for hot dudes too. Yeah. Um, so like uh, this, The Shining did get half a star for babe factor for the two posters in Dick Halloran's apartment because- we rewound that scene Damn. while we were watching it. Those are sexy posters. So it's thank you, Stanley Kubrick's ghost, for uh, for like a little nod to the boobs that were prevalent in the horror genre at this time in history. You know, this is the mm-hmm. 80s slasher wave. You can't have a scary movie without a couple of breasts. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so no. yeah. So ultimately, we ended up with uh, four and a half stars for our little rating book. I'm. I feel good about it. Yeah, I'm happy with that in in our in our rating system. Definitely, uh, Bird. You wanted to tell us the names of some people. I oh man, I hoped to find a set designer for this film because I wanted to see other films that they've worked on, but they didn't have that um, job listed. Yeah. Uh, so I did find Roy Walker under production designer, mm-hmm. Les Tompkins art director, and. Uh, Tessa Davies, a set dresser, among the various other yeah, people many, involved with many, the many visual people. side of this. Um, like you know, we I there you could we could shout out the two camera. They, there's a bunch of camera operators and there's two directors of photography, but also like those low angle shots. We didn't mention this earlier, but those low angle shots were achieved by mounting a camera to the bottom of a wheelchair while the DP sat in the wheelchair, and no one shouts out the two grips. That pushed him around. Like that's <laughs> that's how they achieved that. They just yeah. grabbed two grips and those dudes pushed that around. It wasn't the camera crew. It was it yeah. was. It takes a lot of people to make a movie, and it does you know? Yeah. I, I will probably look up what these people have gone on to do and see if it's anything that I, yeah, you know, like the look of the production. The production designer. What was his name? Because one of these people worked on Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, Roy Walker. Yeah, Roy Walker yeah, worked on Eyes Wide Shut. Also, the production designer on that one. I think the only part of that and I, we haven't seen it in ages to yeah. be to be fair I, it's not good though i vividly remember it not being good. i remember it being visually beautiful visually like, it's, it's nice to look at yeah yeah mostly that our problems with it were the performances Most, yeah mostly nicole kidman's performance <laughs> and that's nothing you know what can't you can't be too mean to her because like could defer an imaginary oh portrait of Deanna Arbus. She's transcendent yeah. in that movie. I would even say in The Beguiled. Yeah. Nicole Kidman is incredible. She's a very good actress. She's, I think she's just very young. She was young. That film. I think she just, might have been miscast. And also, yeah. again, we got to talk about that. We'll, we'll do that movie someday. I don't mm-hmm. know if it'll be you and me or me and Carl, but like one of the things you cannot ignore when you're talking about Eyes Wide Shut is Kubrick wasn't there. Kubrick was not there to execute. So he may not have been there to choose choose what takes sh- were used. The takes that you know, he, he would have. He shot sixty because he was looking for the one thing, and mm-hmm. he wasn't. He wasn't. You know. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is, it, it. If you don't have Kubrick at the wheel, then you you have to give what is left a little bit of leeway because mm-hmm. it's done by just mere mortals rather than <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. All right. So that's The Shining. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for bearing with us for probably close to three and a half hours at this point. Uh, it was The Shining, man. There was no way we were getting out under <sighs> under three. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna go easy on you, 
from here on. Bird and I are going to watch some dumb stuff and talk about it for yes. like an hour and a half at a time. We'll probably be high as balls while we're watching it. I don't know. All right. So we love you all. We do miss you. Um, everyone stay safe and sane and entertained. Watch new movies and, uh, and um, cover your mouth when you cough. Mm-hmm. <laughs>